0: Whereas if you've got the executor like being the next in line leading member, then it's easy. They control the whole process. And then if they're also then the next in line in the point or, they're controlling the, the whole family wealth and putting a moat around it and putting protection around it.
1: You're listening to Australia's tax news podcast. Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 214 of Tech Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Class for sponsoring this episode. I hope you had a nice time away and a great start to 2020 despite everything else. As a nation, of course, we had a terrible start to 2020. Meagre fires, military employed, emergency status declared, 34 people died. Over 6,000 homes destroyed, 18 million hectares burned. I think over 1 billion animals died. And summer isn't even over yet. And of course, the problem is not going to go away with the end of summer. Then we had hail and flooding and now the coronavirus. Tax fields completely irrelevant in all of this. And in some way it is. But in another, of course, it isn't. Because the money to deal with all these issues has to come from somewhere And so tax is part of that equation. Looking ahead for 2020, there's a lot to be done. So many questions to answer, so many things to work out and exciting events to come. The Zero Roadshow this week, the SMSF Associations National Conference on the 19th at the Gold Coast, 19th to 21st of February. I'm really looking forward to it. It will be great. I think it will be great. I've never been to the SMSF Association's national conference, but I've heard a lot of amazing things about it, so I'm very excited. But coming back to the matter at hand, let's talk about the role of an appointer. Should an appointer also be the executor as well as SMSF trustee? Because these three, appointer of the family trust, executor of the estate, and trustee of the SMSF, these three are usually the ones who control the wealth of a deceased, assuming that all the wealth sits in a family trust and or SMSF and or the estate. Is there an argument to put all three into the hands of just one person or should you bring three people to the table? Here's Grant Abbott of Lightyear Docs and I Love SMSF with some insights. And as usual, please take all this justice entertainment and don't believe a word we say. A pointer. Yeah. And you mentioned Michael Hutchins' case. Can you discuss A, what is an appointer and B, what happened to Michael Hutchins? Why the issue about the appointer?
0: What happened with Michael is he was obviously managing his tax affairs, but whether it's true or not, but it's folklore that when he passed away, his tax affairs were being looked after by his tax advisors who had control of the trust. Whoever controls the trust controls all the money. And so they controlled it. And then when his family went to ask for, you know, where's all the royalties, where's all that? These guys said, oh, no, he hasn't got anything because he spent it all. Whether that's the truth or not, it's impossible to find out. One, it was a cross-border jurisdiction because it was based in Hong Kong. And the other one was, well, they've got no rights or entitlements to actually do that because it's a trust. So the trust isn't a Michael Hutchins trust. The trust is receiving income from royalties or other stuff. And then Michael was a beneficiary who, when he passed away, that was the end of it. So the question is who is the actual appointor? And generally for those sort of things, the appointor would be someone like he's an advisor or his accountant because then it can't be tied back to him because so he wasn't controlled, it was all set up for tax purposes. So it's the same thing here in Australia, like when we set up a trust, a discretionary trust, we have the set law who really doesn't do much. They're the ones who just simply... Put property. Pay the $10. It. Yeah, that's just simply to so say the trust starts, you've got the trustee and then you've got the appointor and generally the appointers like the leading member. So that can have a leading member appointor. So it's exactly the same philosophy is they go in, the trustee stays around, but if they don't like the trustee, they can kick them out. But then if there is no appointor, they become sick, they become incapacitated or they retire, or effectively they die, there needs to be a succession plan for the appointor. So it should be that you might have, again, the same leading member for the super fund as also the appointor. And when that person dies, they relinquish their leading membership and they end up relinquishing their appointorship as well. So it works perfectly in line. And it's like, well, it just seems to me to be sensible. Unfortunately, most of the trustees I see is they'll only have one appointor and when that passes away, that whole appointorship just falls away and it all goes back. The trustee now becomes the person who can control the fund and they, if they're already an incumbent trustee, then they can do whatever they like, which mm-hmm. is probably what happened with the Hutchins side of things.
1: Isn't it that most trustees nowadays don't even have an appointor?
0: No, generally if you've got a discretionary trust, you need to have an appointor. Well, you should have an appointor, a succession of appointors. If you've got a unit trust or a fixed trust, then you don't have an appointor because you've got all the unit holders, they all have voting rights and unit holder rights. But the discretionary trust is fully discretionary. So the trustee can do whatever they want, but because the appointor controls the trustee, it's really up to the appointor to put in place. If you've got a substantial or significant amount of wealth or business in there, then you basically want to shift it uh, wherever you can.
1: Appointor play a role in asset protection?
0: Yeah, absolutely. For
1: example, when you have a director in a trading company and that director is also the appointor of the family trust, Yeah. could the... Um... Well,
0: you want to get rid of that appointor. So all the reverse is you might have a company that's acting as the trustee of the discretionary trust and they have a, they're going into liquidation or administration or whatever, can you to choose well by the appointor or can just get rid of them straight away so there's really never that threat if you've got the appointor but likewise if the appointor is under attack from a legal perspective they'll be seen through the family court or whatever that they control that trust hence they'll attack the appointor to try to get the assets of the trust which is what anyone would do but that's the time when the appointor needs to step down and the next in line comes in so typically for asset protection any professional who happens to be in line of potential suit, what they do is they'll put all their assets in their spouse's name. Now, the danger about that is obviously the spouse then walks away, they control everything. So you use a family trust, but the same thing is you want to say, okay, well, if I'm getting attacked, then I can resign my appointeurship and then it passes down like the leading member to the next family member, next one in line generally or the spouse if
1: they want. So would you have an automatic removal noted in the trust deed that says whenever an appointor is subject to bankruptcy proceedings for um, example or subject to family court proceedings or whatever it is they automatically get removed as a appointor and we've gone
0: else we've gone down they? the track obviously with death and incapacity and bankruptcy so that's the, the same sort of thing we haven't gone down the family law court yet but it's certainly something i've been thinking about so i'm, I'm pretty sure the family court would try and weasel its way through anyway but you know again that someone's going to have to have that fight at some point in time. So it can make sense. So for us, bankruptcy, incapacity, death or retirement resignation. So if you think what I would do in that one, if you think that you can see that there's obviously marital problems is just to get out of there straight away and relinquish your appointorship on a voluntary basis.
1: Because the appointor controls the trust, hence Correct. if the appointor gets attacked, the door is wide open to that trust. Mm-hmm. Said something once about build succession in the line of appointors, and then specifically designate beneficiaries within this line. Yeah. So there's no resettlement of the trust.
0: Yeah, so generally what'll happen is you'll have a look at your line of beneficiaries. So it's obviously there's a primary beneficiary who's named, and that might be, you know, John Smith, who's the dad. And and then underneath that it's like actually family trusts or discretion trusts do it well because he'll be named as a primary beneficiary, then it's his spouse. So this is like the leading member, then his kids, any company that's named, bucket companies, et cetera. So we've had a number of clients who have come through and said, well, if this is going to last a long time, why not put in, much the same as, a, as an SMSF, why not put in their names as designated beneficiaries? So because they're, na- they're named there as being children, but why not put their names specifically in there? So we uh, created a deed of designated beneficiary, which basically would name them as being part of that trust. So there's a lot that's actually been learnt from the SMSF by having designated members to actually put in place inside a discretionary trust the same way the leading member actually is a subset of what the appointorship was. So the idea for the leading member came up through the leading member being like the appointor. And so it carried down. So they're both trust vehicles. So again, not only looking outside, but we can also look internally to see are uh, there some things in SMSF which might be good for a family or discretionary trust, and likewise the other way. And then once we get those two in sync, then they can operate side by side and pretty effectively so that succession happens not just for the family trust, but also the SMSF as well.
1: What's the difference between primary beneficiaries and designated beneficiaries? Nothing
0: really. It's just that some people, for example, if I for example, I've got two daughters, Sophia and Tiana. So they're classified as my children, so they're beneficiaries anyway because they're my children. So but it's just better to put in their place is Sophia and also Tiana. So that way it becomes a really it's it starts to be like an SMSF. We know who they are, we know what their elements are. Now, there's no, you know, they've got no different rights or entitlements, but the fact is that we're saying these, these are part of this this whole mechanism we've got going.
1: And when you say they're beneficiaries anyway, you mean they're beneficiaries anyway when you make a family trust election?
0: Correct. So they're, they're beneficiaries and they're my children. So again, it'll only ever be the fact that when the trustee makes a distribution, he makes it down and has to make that assessment. It goes to a child that Sophia is my child or whatever, whereas making a designation, you can say, well, okay, well, these guys are actually, they're my children that actually designated as well. So it just makes it a little bit easier for the trustee. But I wouldn't say it's a sleight of hand. It's just for some clients that I've found, they prefer that they're a lot more comfortable about having that process in place rather than just leaving it to his children.
1: I see. Okay, so primary beneficiaries would just kind of name them as a group. So it would say spouse or children, whereas designated beneficiaries would actually list their name. Correct. And when you talk about there's just one primary beneficiary, isn't yep. it often that a whole range of people are primary beneficiaries?
0: Usually you'll find it will only be about one or two and then what, what happens is they're like actually almost like the leading member. Then it cascades down from them to say it's their children, relatives, you know, any trust that's associated with them, any company that's associated with them because the, the danger about it is that if you've got too wide a set of beneficiaries, you if you do your family election, it starts to cut that out. So what we do is we tend to just you know, keep it pretty tight in fact, quite often just only one person is a primary beneficiary and then that feeds all the way down, so it's their spouse, their children, any of their relatives, trust that they control, so on and so forth.
1: So the primary beneficiaries are usually just the mum and dad. And for the family mm. trust election, what's the word again when you select somebody and then their family? Their family, and, yeah, and yeah, and
0: yeah. What's so, the name again, um, the
1: term? So to but in the term we are looking for is primary individual or more commonly called test individual. That is the individual whose family group is used for the family trust election. So it's
0: exactly the same thing as like like a leading member. member. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, So they both really bounce off each other.
1: So now we spoke a whole lot about beneficiaries. Coming back to the Mm appointer, the appointer doesn't really have anything to do with the beneficiaries because the beneficiaries are...
0: listed or designated
1: in the trust deed.
0: Well, it does actually because the appointor, so at the moment which of the beneficiaries gets, there's a a field or subset of beneficiaries, which one gets what is really up to the trustee. But if if the trustee normally goes one way, like if it went normally to say Sophia, my child, but I change the trustee to someone who's favourable to me, then it can change the complete... complexion because it's a discretionary trust so then they could be knocked out don't get any capital get whatever so that I've seen this used in a number of occasions particularly through testamentary trusts that grandparents have set up testamentary trust for their grandchildren the classic one is obviously the Hancocks where Ling Hancock put in place a trust for his grandchildren all their wealth but then he left his daughter Gina as the trustee and, that and cost, a pointer. And a pointer. And so the problem was that she controlled the whole thing and she's basically the kids have been starved. Although it's a very, very rich trust, the kids have basically been starved of all the wealth because now she controls it all and she just drip feeds it out whenever she wants because she's got the full discretion.
1: Do you know what the latest status is of that? Because it's that a day, was a yeah. lot in the media.
0: I know, it went for a long but time. But it has gone
1: very quiet. I don't know whether it's yeah. settled. it. I think it settled, and I think one of the daughters then became the trustee. Yeah,
0: well that was again. It's the favourable one who comes in wants to tow the mother's line. They come in and be the trustee. So I think it's. I think it'll go on. But that's for lawyers. That's a golden gift because that's the sort of case that will go on for you know forever, and it's unlimited resources. So it's a good ten to twenty million dollar case. It could retire on that one. Yeah, legal legal fees. fees, Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, obviously it's worth a lot more than that. It's billions of dollars because it's getting all the the I think it's all the iron ore rights from certain mines. So those those rights come in. It's. Just feeding all that money but then the trustee has discretion where it goes to.
1: Do you know if Gina Reinhardt was also the appointer of the trust?
0: Yeah, no, I'm not sure on that. But that's quite easy to look at. I, I would say...
1: She must have been. She must have been. the I appointor know. would have just...
0: Correct, she's the trustee. Or it may well be in place, it may well be a testamentary trust that she was the trustee and there is no appointor. So which sounds to me to be the, the right thing but... Um, yeah, she's either a pointer and the trustee or... Just the trustee.
1: Just the trustee. And there is yeah. no appointer.
0: Correct. The main thing is, the, the hint there is that work out, you, and, and what I've been doing on the roadshow is get people to work out their chain of succession. And once you do that, then you're pretty well right because then you can mirror that in your trust, you can mirror that in your SMSF, it's the same thing. So that the next in line, or something happens to someone, should also be your executor in your estate. So because then it means that it then becomes very seamless that if something happens, if someone dies, the whole thing is then passed to the next person and they control everything.
1: So leading member is for the SMSF, appointer is for a family trust or any trust.
0: And the executive for the wills.
1: Yes. And you're saying the leading member or the, the next leading member, yeah. the appointor or the next appointor and the executor of the will should, should be, all be one in the same. Yeah. Be one the well, same.
0: that's the only way you can guarantee certainty because it would be stupid if you've, got, if you've got one executor, which has happened where the cases are, because there's been no control mechanism inside the SMSF, the executor will, if they want the money out of the SMSF and you've got, say, someone else in there who doesn't want to pass the money, then obviously there's going to be yeah. a a fight between the two, whereas if you've got the executor and the the executor being the next-in-line leading member, that's easy. They control the whole process. And then if they're also then the next-in-line and in the pointor, they're controlling the whole family wealth and putting a moat around it and putting protection around it. And you can see if you don't have all of that, then it's just going to create... A, for larger funds and larger trusts, it's just going to create a drama.
1: But in all this, I think... It works when the new appointer, when the new leading member and when the executor have the other beneficiaries' interest in mind. But I think when you have patchwork families and the spouse from the second marriage becomes now the leading member of the SMSF and the other members are children from the first marriage, then I think. Well, then
0: they've got a um, huge problem. Well, yes and no. What you can do is set up two funds if that's going to be an issue. So you can look after, I remember my last, when I was at Now Infinity, I had two funds, one for my children and then one with my ex-wife and their children. So that, that's a way of working around that's that a process. Good idea. Yeah, so again, it costs a little bit more, but not really. But long run, everyone knows exactly what mm. they're getting.
1: But I think that's a good idea. Keep the um, children from the first marriage separate from yeah. the second marriage wife because sooner or later that's going it's to gonna, clash. Yeah, it's
0: going to be a disaster. Um, again, that's it makes it a lot harder. So for the... In the estate, you might have the second spouse, she gets a life tenancy of the property, but then it it folds back. So you can do specific bequests, a testamentary trust for the spouse of the, uh, for the second spouse versus one for the children. So you've already got that process in there, the different trusts that pop up. But likewise, you can do that through your SMSF, make sure you've got different elements there.
1: Welcome back. So for Succession of Wealth, you have three key players, the executor of your will, the pointer of the family trust and the leading member of the SMSF. Grant mentions Michael Hutchins, an Australian singer, the lead singer of In Excess, which started in Sydney and sold over 60 million records worldwide. On the 22nd of November 1997, Hutchins was found dead at the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Double Bay in Sydney. The song, Never Us Apart, which you can hear in the background coming in now, was played at the end of his funeral. Given the number of hits and record sales, you would think that there would have been a large estate. But after paying legal fees, the estate was reportedly empty. There was nothing. Here's Ben Sul talking about offshore tax havens in episode 26 of Tax Talks, touching on the race for the assets. Michael Hutchins' estate held in tax havens
0: is to read about the michael hutchins inheritance dispute where there is a um, there's an offshore incorporated entity and uh there's a there's a lawyer who's an advisor and there's allegations that have been made by the brother that he's been excluded uh, through the the assertion by an external advisor by a lawyer of being the ultimate beneficiary of the estate of michael hutchins so look Yes, you'd think the more exotic you make it and the the further you put it outside the Australian jurisdiction that the risk opens up.
1: And one other thing, you might know the Australian charity Are You Okay? After Hutchins' death, his friend Bono, the lead singer of U2, said, I wish I had checked in more with him to see if he was all right. In the next episode, episode 215, Grant Abbott will talk about excess concessional contributions. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode.